The year is 1892. Two battle lines form on the field of combat. The defenders line up in a tight row, shoulder to shoulder, every muscle coiled, ready to strike in anticipation of the impending attack. The attackers form a usual configuration, a flanking maneuver with forces on the left and the right, and they begin to advance slowly at first, but gradually picking up speed. The defenders are ready. This is something that they've seen a hundred times before. And then something suddenly changes. The forces on the left converge with those on the right and form a wedge with the apex aimed right at the heart of the defender's line. Then the ball is handed to the ball carrier who is protected as he follows the wedge downfield towards the goal line. The field of battle was Hampton Park, Springfield, Massachusetts. The attackers, Harvard Crimson, the defenders, Yale Bulldogs. As New York Times reporter described it, what a grand play, half a ton of bone and muscle coming into collision with a man weighing 160 or 170 pounds. This was the first time that the flying wedge was used in college football, but it was banned two years later because of the danger that it posed to defending teams. But the tactic wasn't new, and it did not have its origin in sports. It was first used by the Scythians, nomadic horsemen from Persia who used it to dominate the prairies of Eurasia from the 7th to the 3rd centuries BC. They used the wedge to drive into the wall of defenders bearing shields, often breaking through and rendering them vulnerable to flank attacks. Because the greatest danger was to the one at the apex of the wedge and because of the success of the maneuver depended on him, the position was usually reserved for the greatest warrior, for the leader, and sometimes for the king himself. The only hope for success is that the soldiers rally behind their leader and stay in formation. If they fell out of position, they would easily be picked off by enemy darts. The Scythians used this tactic with great success against armies that were much more powerful than them. They used this, they used this, this tactic even against the Assyrians. This tactic was also used effectively by the Thracians, by Roman legions, and Germanic tribes to decimate lines of shield-bearing defenders. And the flying wedge is still used to this day by armored cavalry and by light infantry and even by riot police seeking to break through lines of violent protesters. Brothers and sisters, the church is on the offensive, but this is not a game. We're not fighting for our country, or we're not fighting for our family, or even our lives, but all of those things are at stake. We are fighting for our God, and we are fighting an army that is much, much stronger than any shield wall, and far, far more dangerous. And the darts that are hurled against us inflict more damage than spears and arrows. The world tries to corrupt us. The devil tries to deceive us. And as if that was not enough, the flesh acts as a, as a Trojan horse conspiring with them against us. Brothers and sisters, we are assailing the very gates of hell. 
Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. We must be unified behind our leader. We must stay in formation. Christ is at the apex of the wedge. He has set his face like flint. He bears the brunt of the enemy's attacks as he breaks down the gates of hell with his church following in his wake. We are assailing the very gates of hell and we had better be unified behind our Lord. The old adage still stands true. United we stand, divided we fall. And last week I pointed out how diverse we are as a church. On the surface, we look pretty similar. But we are a diverse church. We're diverse generationally, relationally, educationally, and ethnically. But thankfully, we are not a divided church. Of course, we've had our, our, our issues, divisive issues have cropped up. But we are increasingly a united church. In fact, as we've worked through the issues, we're becoming even more unified. We've become more unified as we've discovered that the single unifying rallying point that we have is Christ. But the Corinthian church, on the other hand, had forgotten that. It was a divided church. The Corinthians were divided over church leaders, over immorality, over lawsuits, over marriage, over food offered to idols, the conduct of women in the church, the Lord's Supper, spiritual gifts, and the resurrection. In verse 110, Paul told the Corinthians not to be partitioned, but perfect. He said, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be unified in the same mind and with the same judgment. Paul was calling them to perfect unity in word, mind, and judgment, and he was doing so in the authority of Christ. And then he zeroed in on the first major source of their division. They were creating partitions along the lines of popular personalities. He said he'd heard that that each one of them was saying, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Some of them were aligning themselves with Paul, who had planted the Corinthian church and had been used of God to, to save many of them. Others preferred the eloquence of Apollos to to Paul's simple style. Still others preferred Peter, one of the the original apostles. And there are also those who who claimed to be super spiritual. They said, I don't follow any man, I follow Christ. Paul tells them not to seek personalities, but a person. And he asks a series of rhetorical questions that are meant to show the Corinthians the ridiculous nature of their division. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized into the name of Paul? The answer to all of these questions is, of course, no. Christ is not divided. And then that leads Paul into the issue of baptism. 
down to, to verse 16. So he tells the Corinthians and us that it's not Paul, but a picture. Not Paul, but a picture. Again, in verse 13, Paul asks, Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized into the name of Paul? The crucifixion of Jesus and the baptism of the believer go together. Romans 6.3 Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? And Colossians 2.12 having been buried with him in baptism, which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. This is exactly what baptism is all about. It is a picture of our union with Christ in his death and his burial and his resurrection. Interestingly, baptism is one of the things that, that Apollos had initially gotten wrong. You see that in, in Acts 18, 24 and following. Apollos was, was eloquent. He, he knew the scriptures. He was fervent and he taught the gospel correctly, but he only knew the baptism of John. He didn't know the, the baptism of, into Jesus. He only knew the baptism of repentance that, that John had preached. So Priscilla and Aquila took him aside and set him straight. They explained the way of God to him more accurately. Baptism signifies our union with Christ and our unity with the universal, invisible church as well as with the local, visible church. I'll say that again. Baptism signifies our union with Christ and our unity with the universal, invisible church as well as with the local, visible church. Baptism, baptism is a declaration that our faith is in Jesus Christ. When a church baptizes someone, it is also a declaration that we believe that the person's faith is in Jesus Christ. Baptism is one of the two ordinances, ordinances that have been given to the church. The other is the Lord's Supper, and we're going to celebrate that later on this morning. These ordinances are given to the church, and that's why you don't receive the Lord's Supper or, or practice baptism on a family camping trip. This is something that is for the church. Baptism and the Lord's Supper are, are means of grace that are given to remind us of what Christ has done for the church and of the church's union with him. That's why it's unbelievable for Paul that those who have been baptized could be operating in disunity. The church is one body because there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. Ephesians 4, 5, and 6. To be in disunity as the Corinthians were along the lines of popular preachers is as ridiculous as being baptized into their name. But baptism is, is more than just a sign. It's a symbol. If you couldn't read English and, and you saw a, a red octagonal shape on a post by the side of the road, you would have no idea what it meant. 
But when you approach the intersection of Harvey and Gordon, you see a yellow diamond with an image of a camera on it. It's more than just a sign. It is a symbol because it, it actually pictures, no pun intended, it actually pictures what it represents. It tells us that there is a red light camera at this intersection. Similarly, baptism is a symbol. It pictures what it represents. When somebody goes under the water in baptism, it is a vivid picture of death. When they come up out of the water, it pictures new birth. The Greek word that is translated, that we transliterate baptizo, literally means to dip or to plunge under water. Leonard Busher wrote in, in 1614, Christ hath commanded to be baptized in water that is dipped for dead in the water. Dipped for dead in the water. And every time that the act of baptism is described in the New Testament, it is always by immersion. The, the baptism of repentance from John the Baptist was, was at Anon because there was plenty of water. John 3, 23. When Jesus was baptized by John, Jesus came up out of the water. In Acts chapter 8, when, when Philip preached the gospel to the Ethiopian eunuch, the eunuch said, see, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? In verse 38, they went down into the water. And in verse 39, they came up out of the water. Consider Paul's choice of words in 1 Corinthians 1, 13 and 15. He says, were you baptized in the name of Paul? And so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. Now, it's unfortunate that most English translations use the word in because the prep preposition into would actually be better. This question is rhetorical. Of course we're not baptized into the name of Paul. We are baptized into the name of Christ. We are baptized into the name of Christ because we are baptized into Christ. By this, I'm not talking about, about baptismal regeneration. Baptism signifies what has happened in our hearts. Galatians 3.27 uses the same preposition. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And Romans 6, 3 and 4 is the same. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. The picture is clear. To be baptized into Jesus presupposes faith in Jesus. To be baptized into Jesus presupposes faith in Jesus. How can you be baptized into someone you are not in? Christian baptism always comes after conversion in the New Testament every single time. In the Great Commission, in Matthew 28, 19, Jesus commanded the apostles, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in or, or into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Who are the them that Jesus is referring to? New disciples. 
the apostles baptized those who had been converted. I was finally baptized in 2008, fully 16 years after coming to Christ. Why did I wait that long? Was I being careful, wanting to make sure that I was really saved before uh, taking the plunge? I don't see from Scripture that the, the, the prolonged period between conversion is, and baptism, that wasn't it. It actually came about because of, of a, a membership interview that, that I had at my previous church. I was talking with, with two of the pastors in the church, and, and pretty much at the end of, of the baptism interview, they said, so, so you've been baptized, right? And I said, interesting question. And, and I told them that, that uh, as an infant, I had been sprinkled into, when I was, I was going to the, the United Church. And then not long after my conversion, I was going to, to a, a United Pentecostal church, which, which has been labeled a, a, a cult even by other Pentecostals. Because they, they say that you have to be baptized in order to be saved. And it was interesting that in, in God's providence that, that I, was, I was going to, uh, to seminary and I was able to, to ask professors who had written books on baptism their thoughts on it. Later on, I, I, was, I wasn't sure about that, that previous episode, so, so I was going to, interesting enough, in another cult. And I did it there again, too. But the issue was that these were not legitimate baptisms because these were not true churches. As I said, the baptism has been given to the church. Yes, I was converted. Yes, I was born again. But these were not genuine baptisms because these were not genuine churches. So in my, in my testimony, I, 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 it was very humbling after over 16 years to, to, to finally be getting baptized. But I said, I've been, I've been sprinkled once and dunked twice, and now I'm really getting baptized. Let's pick up again on, on Paul's prepositions from verses 13 and 15. He says, were you baptized in the name of Paul? No one may say that you were baptized in my name. As Gordon Fee says, to be baptized into the name of someone means that the baptist has, has turned over allegiance of himself or herself to the name of the one to the one that is that is named in the right. I'll say that again. To be baptized into the name of someone means that the baptist the one who's being baptized, has turned over allegiance and has given himself or herself to the one named in the right. In the following verses, Paul painstakingly shows that he wasn't baptizing converts after himself. He baptized Crispus, the first convert at Corinth, and Gaius, who he mentions in Romans 6.23, the household of Stephanus, who was the first convert in Achaia, Achaia. Now, our modern Bibles put the latter in brackets, but they actually weren't there in the original. Brackets weren't invented yet. 
Now, the fact that Paul baptized a household is sometimes used as proof to show that, that baptizing infants is the proper practice. But you can't get that from the text. You have to use eisegesis. eisegesis. You have to read into the text. The, the household of Stephanus could just as easily include all converted adults. Paul's point is that the person who is doing the baptism is of no significance. The person who is doing the baptism is of no significance. Last summer, I had the privilege of officiating for Jeremy and Jenna at their wedding. Officiating weddings gives me great pleasure. I especially love the picture of the gospel that, that marriage is. But I really enjoyed sitting down with Jeremy and Jenna to do their pre-marriage counseling. On the day, it was fantastic to see, to see everybody dressed up and to see the decorations and the flowers. But when the music started and Jenna started walking down that aisle, nobody was looking at me. Sure, I had the privilege of giving a message and to charge them of their responsibility before Christ in marriage, but nobody had come there that day to see me. And when Jenna married Jeremy, she didn't take my name, she took Jeremy's name. And together they represent the gospel as Jeremy loves Jenna as Christ did the church and gave himself for her and as Jenna submits to Jeremy as unto the Lord. And that picture is even more powerful in baptism. When I baptize somebody, I'm not baptizing them into my name, but into Christ's name using the Trinitarian formula in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. But what I'm really doing when I baptize someone into the name is I'm baptizing them into the name of one in whom they already are. It is a physical picture of the spiritual reality. It's just a picture of what has taken place in their hearts. So as important as the issue of baptism is, in verse 17, Paul points beyond it. He says he came not for a picture, but for proclamation. Not for a picture, but for proclamation. He says, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. That conjunction four points back to the previous verses, especially to the end of verse 16. He says, I don't remember when I, whether I baptized anyone else. He says that because that was not his calling. Whereas Gordon Fee says it was not his point. Paul's point has been to jolt the Corinthians into seeing the folly of their kind of allegiance to mere humans. This is a point to which he will return in chapter 3. Paul's focus was not on baptism, but on the proclamation of the gospel. This, he says, is what Christ sent him for. Again, he's revealing his apostolic authority. Paul is an apostle sent by Christ not to baptize, but to preach the gospel. 
Now we need to be careful here. Paul is not in any way downplaying the importance of baptism. He's putting it in its proper perspective. He's revealing where baptism gets its value. Baptism is a picture, but its value is in what it pictures. As Beasley Murray explains, the whole meaning of baptism is derived from Christ and his redemption. It is kerygma, which means proclamation in action. And if the action suitably bodies forth the content of the kerygma, so much clearer is its speech. So baptism proclaims the gospel clearly because of its mode. But the meaning of baptism comes from the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ. Without that, baptism is nothing more than a quick bath. Jesus did commission the twelve to baptize. We've already looked at the Great Commission. Baptism is a vital function, but the primacy is on proclamation. I love being here on Sunday mornings and seeing you all. But it's very hard for me to be away from Jane and Liam. Now, every weekend, Jane sends me plenty of pictures of, of her and Liam. But imagine if I were to say to Jane, it's okay, I, I don't need to come back to see you on, on Sunday evening. I have pictures of you. The pictures aren't enough. I'm not satisfied with a mere picture. I want my family. And so Paul proclaims the gospel, the reality towards which baptism points. And he does so not with, not with eloquent words of wisdom, but with power. Wisdom versus foolishness and power versus weakness is a recurrent theme in 1 Corinthians. It's going to dominate the next two and a half chapters. Paul was not an eloquent speaker. Apollos might have been, but he wasn't. It's not false humility when, when Paul says in chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Why? Verse 5, So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Leon Morris points out that the reliance on rhetoric would cause trust in men. This is the very opposite of what preaching the cross is meant to effect. If Paul was, was able to use logical arguments and convincing speech to, to convert people, who would get the glory? Paul would. But Paul wants God to get the glory. In the late 18th century, a movement began which has become known as the Second Great Awakening. Now, whether it was great and, and whether it was an awakening is questionable. At the center of that, that movement was a man named Charles Finney. 
Finney had been a lawyer and believed that it was his job to convince people of their need to repent. And he did so by using man-made techniques. He said a minister who wished to work up a revival should show the same wisdom as the politicians and use the appropriate means to that end. So he employed such means as the anxious seat when he would have a sinner sit down on a chair and he would publicly call them out for their sin and berate them until they were broken. He would use long, drawn-out altar calls with, with emotive music that, emotive music that were, were, were meant to, to evoke emotion. And, and to, to, they would go long enough so that the people would, would just get so uncomfortable that they would eventually come forwards. Now, now Finney did, excuse me, did acknowledge that, that conversion is, is not based only on the efficacy of the arguments or the ability of the preacher. But he actually did, at the end of his life, he actually repented and said that by using the techniques that he used, that, that he was, was taking away glory from the work of the Holy Spirit in conversion. Billy Graham uses many of the same techniques. He acknowledged that if only 5% of the people who were converted at his meetings were actually in heaven, he would be pleased. 5%. Now, people do genuinely get converted at Billy Graham crusades. We have people here in this room who were converted at Billy Graham crusades, but it was not the techniques that saved him. It, was, it is not the arguments of men that save people. It is the power of the Holy Spirit in the proclamation of the gospel. The power is not in techniques. The power is in the cross. There needs to be power because what is required is not to change men's minds, but to change men's hearts. And no man has the power to do that. Men do not even have the power to change their own hearts. But the Word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit is able to do that. Hebrews 4.12 For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So what has the power to change men's hearts and, you, and unite them with God? What has the power to unify the Corinthian church? What has the power to unify this church? The proclamation of the gospel in the power of the Holy Spirit. And we will know unity in Christ as much as we unify in Christ. On nothing but Christ. Christ is at the center of this church. And in Christ, we are unified so that in us, by God's grace, 
Christ is glorified. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for the powerful gospel of Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, that, that your word, when proclaiming the power of the Holy Spirit, produces its intended effect. Creating life where once there was death. Creating submission where once there was rebellion. Creating love where once there was hatred. Hatred. 